Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. You might be surprised to learn that when you're in San Francisco, you could be walking over thousands of forgotten graves. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with Beth Weingarner about her book, San Francisco's Forgotten Cemeteries, A Buried History. Beth will take us through San Francisco's cemetery history, the relocations, and the oversights that left thousands of graves and their deceased behind all that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're excited today to be sitting down with author and historian Beth Weingarner, and we're talking all about her book, San Francisco's Forgotten Cemeteries, A Buried History. Um, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great story, not only about San Francisco, but about cemeteries in general and how they can be lost and uh, all sorts of things that can happen to them um, and how, how in some ways we, I guess, resurrect them and at least through the historical record. But we'll dive into all that in a little bit here. But first, we, we love to get to know people because everyone has such a unique and diverse path into preservation. And as we broadly define it, everything from historians to people writing books to people doing archaeology and everything in between. Um, so where'd you grow up? And, you know, what was your your path into eventually writing this book? Uh, what's your your background? How, what do you do professionally? Get let people know a little bit about yourself. I am a California native, Northern, Northern California native. Um, I grew up in Sonoma County, which most people here know as part of wine country. Um, tons of vineyards, tons of people driving around tasting wine. Um, I grew up in a very small town and I fell in love with journalism in high school where I started writing for the school paper, a little bit of music reviews, a little bit of reporting on things going on on the high school campus. And it really, um, it seemed like a way where I could write for a living, but also not be dependent on the whims of, say, the the novel reading market or, or whatever else was happening at the time. Um, and I went to UC Berkeley and began working as a paid editor on the paper there. It's called The Daily Californian. And I started working as a music critic for a couple of places, including the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, after I left college, I found that you can't really make a living as a freelance music critic. So I started working in more regular reporting and became uh, an editor and reporter for a small newspaper in San Rafael, which is also Northern California. But another thing I did while I was at Berkeley was I started a book on the history of Sonoma County where I grew up and it focused on haunted places and weird places, places people had had strange experiences. Um, And that was my first experience sort of digging into like library history archives and those sorts of things and piecing together what was in the land before I was in the land. Um, And I really enjoyed that. And people are still buying copies of that book. It's called Sacred Sonoma. 
it's a it, perfect perfect thing to pick up when you're like traveling and touring a place that sounds like the kind of book I probably would buy. Um, so talk to me about how you go from uh, I love I love music critic too. I like I like that. Any any uh, uh, bands that you critiqued that people might know of, or ones that you were like critiquing and then went on to become something huge? Well, I did write a a review of the new. It was like 1991. Guns and Roses came out with their second album, which was very controversial. Uh, I remember our faculty advisor didn't want me to write about it because it had one of those parental advisory stickers on it. And, <laughs> you know, the she was like, well, this is inappropriate for most high school students. But eventually they they let me write about it, I think. Um, but, yeah, for the Chronicle, I interviewed so many great people. Um, I interviewed Cindy Lauper and um, I'm trying to remember who else. Um, Pat Boone, when he came out with his heavy metal album, that was <laughs> that's awesome. What a what a what a cool um, sort of uh, diversity of experiences in writing. Yeah. Um, and so you write the book on Sonoma, and then how do we get the inspiration to write the book that we're going to be talking about about these cemeteries in San Francisco? Well, I've lived in San Francisco for almost twenty years. Um, but had trouble feeling like I knew the land and the place in the same way that I did Sonoma County. And I started to look for a project that I could do that would help me understand this place better. And at the same time, um, a friend of mine who's in England gave an online talk about what are called corpse roads in Europe. Um, these are the pathways that the pallbearers would take to take the dead in their coffin from their home to the churchyard to be buried. And they were sometimes straight and easy paths. And sometimes they were these very weird paths, like across streams with no bridge or up staircases or whatever. And to some extent, that was because of superstitions that the the corpse or the the spirit of the body might find its way back to the house and cause problems for the living um and there were always there were also superstitions about like spirits or um ghost dogs that you might find along the pathway that were attracted to the energy of the spirits now you know that's europe they have a lot of traditions but i knew that san francisco had been settled by a lot of these same people. And even if they didn't intentionally have these pathways, I was just sort of curious what roads that we have now would have led to cemeteries. And that combined with uh, a friend of mine introduced me to a digital archive of California newspapers. And I just started searching for the word cemetery in San Francisco um, and began to uncover this whole story of all the cemeteries that were here that nobody knows about. Um, and we think they're all gone, but they're not actually all gone. So obviously people can pick up the book and we encourage them to do it. We have a link in the show notes so that you can purchase a copy for yourself. Um, and as we said, sort of at the outset, the book's title is San Francisco's Forgotten Cemeteries, A Buried History. Um, how does someone lose a cemetery? It seems like so, it seems like something where you're like, that's one that we don't want. Like, how do you 
I, it's it's like a strange thing to lose. Well, one of the things that I like about this research is that it is actually a story of how San Francisco itself happened. But as I said, it's a story of the settler cemeteries. That means that we start with the Spanish missionaries who established the mission and their first cemetery there in the 1770s. And it continues until the last burials happened in 1901. In that time, we had about 30 cemeteries, mostly near the early settlement, which was downtown near where the ferry building and the Embarcadero and downtown San Francisco are today. And the first cemeteries in that part of the city started in probably the 1830s, 1840s. And at the time, they didn't know the gold rush was about to happen. So Mm -hmm. they would create a small spot to bury a few people and think, well, this place is never going to be a big city. So this is a good place to just bury a few of the dead who've come here. Um, But very quickly, what happened was these places would fill up or people didn't want to live next to them. So they would start a slightly bigger cemetery a little bit further out. And then that became surrounded by people. And because of the turnover in population, people would forget that there was a cemetery on a previous location. And is that because, I mean, the book talks about this, but that's because they weren't, we imagine a cemetery is that, you know, maybe it has an iron fence around it and it has stone tablets that make it, you know, in, in some ways sort of permanent or at least a, a much more difficult feature on the landscape to uh, eradicate. But that wasn't always the case, particularly with these really old cemeteries. Is that why they were easier to forget? Like they didn't always have stone tablets and things like that? I think to some extent that's true, especially in the early days. Um, A number of the newspaper reports say that most of the graves were marked with maybe a white piece of wood painted with somebody's name and where they came from. Um, that happened. One of the earliest cemeteries was called the Sailor's Burying Ground. Uh, it was near Telegraph Hill for people who know the city. And if, you know, they were, I can't even remember, but there was a storm and some of the rocks washed away. And so then some of the bodies washed out of the ground because it was on a hillside. And then once they discovered that this was a cemetery, like they'd already forgotten by this point. Once they discovered it was a cemetery, they were actually digging up the rocks to use as ballast for the ships um, to distribute the weight and do all the things they need to do to operate the ships. And some of the people's bones were then used as ballast along with the coffin wood and the rocks and everything else. There's just no institutional memory in that in those early days, and they were marked with something less permanent than a, a gravestone like we would think of today. And is when you say the earliest, I was going to ask that, like, what is the oldest one that you documented or that you sort of un, uncovered in this process? Well, the oldest that I'm talking about is the Missionary Cemetery, again, in the 1770s. Um, This next one, the Sailor's Burying Ground, I think was established in the 1830s, right before people or right as people started moving into that part of the city. And what about Native Americans? Do we find those as well or are those even more difficult to to nail down? 
There are Native American burial sites, but I chose not to include them in the book because um, that's not my culture and it doesn't feel right to for me to talk about them. But the exception is the mission because so many Native Americans were forced into labor there and died under the conditions of work and disease. And there's about 5,500 of them buried on the mission property. Um, mostly in an unmarked mass grave behind the main cemetery. Um, you talk in the book about impromptu cemeteries, sort of like ones that just kind of ha- happen. That seems like one you could you could lose. Um, and I'm curious, my question about that is, were these uncovered, like in your research, did you find them or were you finding stories of people bumping into bodies. Yeah, that was one of the repeating patterns that I discovered as I was reading newspaper articles is that, you know, somebody would be building a a new housing site or something and they would start to dig up bodies. And in some cases they would think, "Uh oh, was somebody murdered here? You know, is this a a crime scene? But then they would just, they would eventually find so many or they would find somebody nearby who was like, oh, yeah, that was a cemetery 20 years ago. Um, it just and it made me feel bad for the people who were building the city because it happened so often and workers were justifiably very upset to suddenly discover they were digging up graves of the dead. Um, there was one instance where they learned that the person had died of cholera and that all the workers became convinced that they contracted cholera from digging up this grave, even though that's not how you get cholera. I was going to say, is that possible? I don't think that's, no. No, but, you know, people would walk off the work site and refuse to come back because of these discoveries. And I have to imagine in most cases, the people who now, you know, in cases where these cemeteries have been built over by development, in many, if not most cases, they didn't, they don't know that this is, the case that they're living on top of what was once a cemetery. I think it's true that the average person living or working in San Francisco doesn't know that the pl- the places that used to be cemeteries that they might be living or working on top of them. Um, the city is doing a better job in terms of development. So if you go to plan the planning department and you apply to build something. Um, there's a new there's actually a new internal system where they'll tell you there used to be a cemetery here so you're going to need to be super careful and report anything you find and we'll deal with it together why don't we take a quick break come back and let's talk we'll do some rapid fire questions about just some some of your like strangest ones favorite ones um i want to talk to you about the cypress trees because i thought that was a really cool thing on the landscape and um and maybe how this research is impacting preservation, like what we were just talking. Um, and we'll do that right here when we come back on PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP, 
TTAP's an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Beth Weingartner, and we're talking all about her book, which is really focused on these amazing sort of forgotten cemeteries. The book's title is San Francisco's Forgotten Cemeteries, A Buried History. Um, before we we took our break, we, we did the introduction here, and we talked a little bit about how this story came together, the research that she did, and um, how cemeteries get lost and how they get forgotten. Um, and so... Um, you know, I guess I asked you before about the oldest. What was the most recent forgotten cemetery? That's a really good question. I would say one of the most recent and almost certainly the biggest is what's called City Cemetery or Golden Gate Cemetery uh, was its official name. It was in the far northwest corner of the city. It was the last public municipal cemetery established by San Francisco before it realized that it couldn't have cemeteries because there were just too many people and too many people complaining about them. Uh, it opened in 1870 and it was largely started as a what's called a potter's field or a place for um, the poor dead to be buried on the city's dime when they didn't have anyone else or they didn't have any money for a funeral and burial. Um, and soon after, it became a place with uh, a lot of plots for different benevolent organizations um, or immigrant organizations. Uh, there was a small Jewish cemetery there. There was a large Chinese cemetery there. Um, and all told, there were probably, over the course of its 30-year uh, operations, probably about 30,000 people buried there. Um, wow. Not huge by today's standards necessarily, but when it closed, um, not very many of the bodies were moved at all. And there was, it's, it's tough to track because the Chinese in particular had a practice of uh, exhuming their dead and sending them back to their hometowns a few hours or a few years after burial. Hmm. So uh, let's say, I think there were about 10,000 Chinese burials there, but probably about 6,000 went home to China. And so I was going to ask, so when you say hometown, you mean hometown. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, so there's, there's a lot of what I call cemetery math here, but um, those who have done some really great uh, accounting of the cemetery think that there's at least 10,000 still there, uh, or as poss possibly as many as 20,000. And what now, sits on top of it today? It is a public golf course and the site of the Legion of Honor Museum. And in the course of developing the Legion of Honor, uh, it was built in the early 1920s. They found a thousand or so graves and just sort of pushed them off to the side and reburied them. And then uh, when the museum under, underwent renovations in the mid-90s, uh, 
they found probably 900, uh, some of the same ones and some new ones. And those, because we had better practices in place, were turned over to the coroner and reburied um, and given some sort of proper recognition. But there's still the fact that when you're in the underground gallery in this museum, you're surrounded by the potter's field that was established there you know, 150 years ago. And there are still a couple of monuments on the golf course. You know, there's one for sailors who died in San Francisco. And then there's another one that's sort of at the middle of where the Chinese burials were. Um, and you asked about efforts to uh, preserve some of these places, um, not because of my efforts, but it because of other historians here in the city. There's now a plaque within this property that tells you this used to be a cemetery. It shows a map of where the plots were um, and tells you about some of those uh, monuments that are still there. I would love to see more places in San Francisco do this sort of thing because I think, you know, it's not practical to convert these places back to cemeteries necessarily. And it's not practical to move everybody. Um, but it would be nice to have some recognition uh, of the places where the dead are still in the ground. Yeah, and I think that that's a lesson for anyone listening across the country to this episode, whether or not you're interested in San Francisco's cemeteries or cemeteries in your own community and lost ones for that matter. So, uh, you know, th this little conversation, just this little side right here about, um, you know, this more recent one um, – kind of paints the picture of what a fascinating book it is. And we had a chance to take a look at it before this um, episode. And I can attest to that. It is it is quite the cool story um, and just fascinating. Um, so, uh, all right. Sh uh, do you have a favorite that you found? Favorite cemetery? Um, I think City Cemetery is one of my favorites. Um, another is the first public and municipal cemetery which was called Yerba Buena Cemetery. It was established in 1850, and the city surveyor famously said, I think this will serve us for the next 50 years. And uh, it was completely full within eight years. Oh, boy. Um, with it, nobody knows for sure how many people were buried there. Um, the papers at the time said probably seven to 9,000. Um, and again, it had a uh, section for poor people, sections for the Chinese, other immigrants, people of color. Um, and the thing about this cemetery is that it's right in the middle of San Francisco. Uh, it's where United Nations Plaza is. It's where the main library is, the Asian Art Museum. Um, and it closed in the 1860s. And then in the 1880s, they started building uh, city Hall, the original City Hall. Um, and it, again, people were digging up graves and going, what's going on here? Why are we digging up graves? <laughs> so they built City Hall. It was knocked down in an earthquake. They renovated the site for a library. It discovered more dead. Um, the same site became the Asian Art Museum that people visit today from around the world. Um, found again, more graves in the process of renovating that. Um, there are probably thousands of people still buried here, right in that part of the city where people are going to the library, going to the museum, on their way to City Hall. 
going to the food trucks, going to the courthouses. Um, it's a very busy area and nobody knows for sure how many people are still there. So, uh, well, I guess it goes without saying, if you go and visit San Francisco, you, who knows what you're walking over. And I guess, I guess, you know, and uh, you could pick up the book and find out more about what that is. Um, before we, the couple final questions here, the cypress trees, I thought that was really fascinating um, just because it's sort of this like living legacy on the landscape. Tell folks about that and how the book covers that issue. I noticed as I was visiting these sites where cemeteries used to be, or in some cases still are, um, that I was just seeing these. We have a local cypress called the Monterey cypress or the um, coastal cypress. Now, they're really common in San Francisco. They're common all over California. Um, but they also have a history in mythology and funerary practice. They became, in, in Greek mythology, became associated with death and with grief. Um, and I just thought it was really cool that these trees kept popping up in these places, almost like the land trying to remind us of what was here before. Now, obviously, there's more history. The Ohlone were here 10,000 years ago before we were ever here. Um, but yeah, it just... It just felt like these trees were saying, hey, there's more to the story than, you know, this apartment building or um, this museum or or this park. Um, and it's worth thinking about. Yeah. It's a living, what, living part of the legacy and, and on the yeah. landscape. Um, <laughs> and this is, I guess, a, a, a slightly personal question, but I'm curious for somebody who studied cemeteries so long now and how they can be lost, has it influenced um, the, your thoughts on 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 long term where where you may repose? Like, I just imagine like this, it just really kind of changes the way, at least it did for me when I read through it. Like, wow, like, it, you know, it's it's it, and, and I guess it just reinforces that nothing is permanent. Right. Um, but I, I'm curious how that impacted you or did you kind of know that going into it or did it did it did the writing of the book impact you personally that way? You know, I go back and forth all the time on what I might, you know, what I might want to do. And I think to some extent, the the graves of the dead are not for the dead, but they're for the living. Sure. Um, you know, historic cemeteries are a kind of history. And you go to these places and you read their names, you see how long they lived and where they came from and in some cases how they died. Um, like you learn something about the place that you're in when you read those things, but also, um, a lot of post civil war to present burial practices are horrible for the environment. You know, mm -hmm. a, a steel coffin and an embalmed body are very bad for the earth. So there's a, a trend towards, uh, green burials or composting mm -hmm. or, um, Aquamation, which is sort of a dissolving of the bones in a a, a way that doesn't produce emissions in the way that uh, cremation does, you know, because that puts smoke out in the, into the environment and uh, all those heavy metals in your fillings and whatever else is in your body. Um, so, I mean, my answer is that I don't really have an answer. It would be nice to have something that endures, but maybe as a writer, I have that in other ways. Yeah. Um, 
but also I don't want to pollute the earth when I, when I go out. So, yeah, I just, I felt like that was sort of a, a great kind of takeaway from it is it, it makes you the book in that way kind of make, makes you contemplate your own, whether it be you, the writer or, or me, the reader, um, you know, your own permanence and your own legacy and where you might be. I think it just asks it, it asks the reader a lot of interesting questions. And I think for that reason and so many more, it's a, it's a great book um, and a, a great way to kind of make people think about the historic landscape in a way that they might not otherwise. Um, so what are you working on next? I am at the moment taking a break from any long-term writing. Um, I am a freelance journalist and I'm, sort of getting back into stories that I wanted to write during the course of the book, but haven't. Um, I'm not sure when this is running, but I just had a, an article this week about San Francisco's emergency siren system, which was hmm. taken down four years ago for uh, cybersecurity upgrades. And they said it would be back in two years and it's still quiet. And uh, a nice thing happened, which is that the day after that story ran, uh, one of our supervisors said, oh, I just found some money. We'll get these back online next year. So um, activism, journalism in the best way, like it, it activated something, right? I think so. And, you know, with wildfires and the fact that um, Maui just had those massive fires and it was revealed their sirens did not get turned on. Um, I think there's a little more pressure on public officials to try to create a better emergency response system if we can. Fascinating. Um, before we go, we ask everybody your favorite historic place or site. And in this case, it could be maybe even just something you you visited very recently if you have a hard time picking. You know, I don't know if I have a favorite, but there is one that I really like. Um, just up the hill from Dolores Park, which is a fairly famous park in San Francisco and used to be a Jewish cemetery. Just up the hill from that is a fire hydrant um, that is painted gold and repainted every year. And the reason is it is one of the fire hydrants that actually worked after the 1906 earthquake and the fires. Oh, wow. So um, it's because it was working and because it had water, um, the homes that are south of 20th Street were able to be saved from the fires. And so it's a really special spot, but it, it you, it's one of those you could miss it very easily if you're not paying attention. I kind of like that about it. That's a very cool one. That's very unique. We get we've gone from the grandiose to we had someone who had a favorite restroom, a historic restroom. I think it was in a in a in a uh, train station. And now this is our first fire hydrant. So good work. <laughs> Um, well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, loved reading it and encourage everyone to pick it up. The links are in the show notes um, and hope to talk to you again soon in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving. <laughs>